John 5, verse 1 through 24, says this. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. And within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, Pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. And he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. And just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son also gives life to whom he wants. The father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, so that all people may honor the son just as they honor the father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is the word of the Lord. I know what some of you are probably experiencing right now, just a little mild disappointment because you're going, Drew Moss, was, where's Drew going? <laughs> What's the guitar guy doing walking up like he's going to preach? This may be definitive proof that God's mercies are new every morning because it's not noon yet, so I think we're going to be okay. Uh, we're going to do what cool pastors like to say, and we're going to unpack this. We're going to unpack this text. There is a lot there. And last week, Jim preached about the healing of the royal official's son. This took place in Cana, which is where the first recorded miracle of Jesus took place. He turned water into wine. There was nothing controversial about that. No one confronted him about it, but they were amazed. Woman, what do you, what do the things of you have to do with the things of me? I still remember Jim preaching about that. The royal official's son was ill, and his son was in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum became the center of Jesus' ministry. It became his hometown. It's where he called Peter and Andrew. It's where he healed Peter's mother-in-law. It's where the centurion built the synagogue that Jesus taught in when he was in Capernaum. And those ruins are still there. It's amazing to see. It's a 17-mile journey from Capernaum to Cana. 
Now, we can get in a car, and in about 20 minutes, we can drive 17 miles. You can't even pack your camel up in 20 minutes in the first century. It was a journey. It took several days. You had to put some effort into it. So this royal official went seeking Jesus because he must have heard something about Jesus. He came with some expectation that Jesus could do what he was going to ask of him and heal his son. And as we saw in the text, Jesus said, go, it'll be done as you, you ask. And he turned around, and as he's on the journey, they come and meet him. His son is healed. Again, there's no controversy. There's no confrontation going on. There's nothing recorded that this is going on the Sabbath. It's happening on the Sabbath. That becomes an issue. And so now they're going to, well, let's go to verse 1. After this, after all of this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, when we talk about up, I would say I'm going up to Wichita, I'm going up to Kansas City, going up to Canada if I'm Jim Johnson visiting his family, or I'm going down to Houston to visit my family. We think in terms of north-south. Up is literally lay the map flat, and you're going up. You're going up from a hilly, green, beautiful region in the north of Israel to a very mountainous region. I think there's a map. Yeah, there it is. So, so Cana is right there, Okay. It's up north, right in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and you go straight south, and there's Jerusalem. And that's where it transitions from rugged, mountainous, arid down to the Judean wilderness, really right at the top of the Dead Sea. Um, Israel is a fat, fat, fascinating place from a topographical perspective. The land is beautiful, and there's tons of variety. And this would have been a long journey. We don't know how long it took Jesus to get from Cana to Jerusalem. John said that if everything Jesus ever did was written down in books, the world couldn't contain them. So I'm interested when I get to heaven to ask John, what happened on that journey? It might have been a week, it might have been two weeks, and surely there was teaching and sharing and camping and eating and all kinds of fellowship going on as they made their way to Jerusalem. So they go up the mountain, they're in Jerusalem, and we find ourselves there in verse 2. So by the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda. It's a very well, in Aramaic, it's a very well-known archaeological site. There's no debate about this. We know where the Pool of Bethesda is. I've had the privilege of being there twice and walking around up above it. It's this beautiful garden area. And you can see the very stones and columns that were there when Jesus did what we're about to hear about. It has five colonnades or rows between columns. Within these, there lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. This place was near the temple court, but it wasn't a pleasant place. I mean, the, the, the people that were there laying around would have been miserable. They would have had difficulty with personal hygiene. They had to rely on others for food and for transportation. There were, there were a lot of helpless people laying around here. It just wouldn't be a place you'd just choose to go hang out. It was very unpleasant. And as I read about this, I remembered in 2019 being in Poland and we were asked if we would be willing to sing in a psychiatric hospital. We had a group of musicians there. Uh, sure, they'd never done this before. And so they take us in a van. We have an acoustic guitar and a bunch of little hand percussion instruments. And we were eating pizza in this little room, waiting to see whether or not we were going to be able to go do this. The walls are dingy yellow. The building looked like it was built under communist rule. It was pretty bleak. It was pretty bleak. And so they say, yeah, we're going to do it. So we file into this classroom, and there are maybe 25 people there. And the one memory I have that just I can't escape is a man, this is going to make me weep, 
sitting in front of us that weighed about 300 pounds in an adult diaper, no pants covering it. And we sang for probably 45 minutes. I don't know if they understood a word we said, but the Spirit was in the room and it ministered to them. And that man sat there and wept the whole time. And we finished with, Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. And Steve Carpenter thought the Holy Spirit had gone by because when his eyes were closed, he felt the wind. We later found out it was a nurse hurrying out of the room. (laughs) So we had a really good laugh about that. That was the thing that everybody talked about after the trip. Not being on stage in front of a lot of people, but being in that room with people that are shunned and ashamed and forgotten. This was the Pool of Bethesda. These people were ashamed, they were shunned, it was an honor-shame culture, and they were completely helpless. It wasn't originally meant to be this way. God did not create us for that kind of life. Sin exists, which leads to disorder and ultimately death. It's, okay, science nerds, where are the science nerds in the room? I know Mark's here with us. You all know I'm a science nerd. I've always got to bring in you know, relativity or Newton's law of gravity or something into these messages. This is entropy. Yeah, this is entropy. Those chemists and engineers in the room know what I'm talking about. It's the second law of thermodynamics. We've all been affected by it. So as I describe it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Metal rusts. Wood rots. Are you familiar with these things? Food spoils. Do you know what I'm talking about? Cars break down, tires leak air, disorder, bodies age, relationships fray and break, ideas clash, crime thrives, and nation, wars against nation. Now, as I mentioned, I've personally been touched by this biological entropy, this aging, this breaking down of things. I was in here on a Wednesday afternoon. I don't remember what was happening that evening, but I think I was getting the room ready. And there's a camera up in the balcony where some of my friends sit and support us with their technical skills. And they were on the the camera was on the screens. So I'm just walking around. I'm coming down this front aisle, and I look up at the screen, and I see a spot of scalp this big. And my first thought was, why didn't anybody tell me I've got a bald spot? (laughs) And then I thought, well, who's going to tell you that? Hey, Steve, you got a bald spot. Yeah. No, that's not what he... Yeah, so so Adam and Eve, what you've done to my head. You know, my vanity was exposed. And what was worse, it was based on ignorance about what the real situation was going on up there. Holy cow. But we're we're all affected by that, right? Like, you all know what I'm talking about. God didn't create us to live in a world that's breaking down. But sin has subjected the entire universe to futility, and it's waiting for liberation as we wait. Unfortunately, it's not going to stay that way. There's more to the story. Verse 5. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. I can't imagine laying at the pool of Bethesda every day for 38 years, hoping for something. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Well, if it's me laying there, I'm thinking, what do you think, Captain Obvious? (laughs) Forgive me, Lord. I hope I wouldn't be sarcastic. I hope I wouldn't be. This wasn't like Cana. 
The royal official sought Jesus out. He went 17 miles to go find and ask. This guy has no idea who's standing in front of him. So he says, sir, first clue he doesn't know who he's talking to. The Lord of glory, the one who created everything, is standing there asking him if he wants to be healed. I'm sure Jesus knew the answer. Sir, the disabled man answered. Now, let's just stop right there. Sir, this is the same way the woman at the well addressed Jesus. She didn't know who he was, right? But they have this very interesting conversation about living water, water springing up. And if you knew who it was talking to you, you would ask. And I would give you water that would spring up to a life within you. And you'd never thirst again. Sir, give me this water. That's not what goes on here. Sir, the disabled man answered. I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. He didn't know who Jesus was. The woman at the well didn't know who Jesus was. The religious leaders were beginning to learn about Jesus, but they never recognized really who he was. The disciples showed glimmers of true understanding at times, but they kept blowing it and getting it wrong. And I don't think it was really until the resurrection and the ascension and the coming of the Spirit that they fully understood who Jesus was. Do you know who really knew who Jesus was? Obviously the father did. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Clearly the father knew. Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration on top of the mountain. They knew. The angels that ministered to Jesus after his temptation in the wilderness, they knew. You know who else knew? Satan knew. The demons knew. The demons were terrified when they faced Jesus. They knew the Lord of glory was standing in front of him, and they knew what he was capable of. It's one thing to know him. It's something else just to know about him. May we really know him this morning. We'll talk more about that as we go. But he didn't even know to ask Jesus for the healing. He started to explain to him, look, this is how it's going to go down. This is how it works, Jesus. The angel stirs the water and the first person in gets healed. Now, there's evidence in, Jew, in uh, Roman history that even 100 years later, Romans were still going to this place, even after the destruction of Jerusalem. So for some reason, they believe this is what actually happened. We really don't know. It sounds like a myth to me. Have you ever wanted to tell Jesus how he needed to answer your prayers? Now, this is how it's got to work, Jesus. This is how it's got to happen. God always answers prayer. It might be yes, it might be no, it might be not now. It might be not the way you're thinking, but God hears the prayers of his people, and he will answer. He is faithful. So, verse 8, Jesus says, get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. And instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Disorder is ordered. The command of Jesus reverses the physical breakdown this man had experienced. We don't know whether he was born this way or at a very young age he became disabled. But at Jesus' command, the man responds. He's made completely strong, completely whole. Now, I thought about this and thought, if I hadn't walked in 38 years, I'm not sure it's like a bike. Have you ever seen a toddler trying to learn how to walk? Like Jesus gave him his center of gravity. Jesus not only just made him strong, He gave him the balance necessary to just pick up his mat and walk like it was nothing. this, This miracle was total and complete healing in every way. Truly miraculous. 
and awesome. Now, Isaiah saw this 700 years before Jesus. We don't have the text on the screen, but I'm going to read a little bit of this to you. It's Isaiah 35, 3-7, if you're taking notes. I think Isaiah must have seen something like this. He's writing about the return of the exiles to Israel. But there are more layers to what he's writing than just that. Then it says, The eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. For the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, and for water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool, and the thirsty land springs. In the haunt of jackals in their lairs there will be grass, reeds, and papyrus. It takes me back to being in Israel on the northern border with Syria and looking down from a high point and seeing the border. And on the Israel side of the border, it is lush and green. And on the Syrian side, it is a wasteland of desert. There's a bombed out hospital. The, the, the difference is stark. <laughs> so God has clearly blessed Israel and they are thriving in the midst of all of their enemies right now. He canceled entropy. He reversed it. He overcame it. The disorder that sits between sin and death, we get a glimmer, a glimpse that Jesus has authority and power over that. So the end of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. Here we go. You might as well say high noon at the OK Corral. Something about to go down here. Sabbath. Sabbath is a big deal. To the Jews. And so the Jews said to the man who's been healed, This is the Sabbath. Thanks again, Captain Obvious. When someone says something obvious, you know another shoe is going to drop. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. Like, really? Does the law really prohibit you from picking up a mat and walking? Does the Torah say in the Ten Commandments, Don't pick up a mat and walk on the Sabbath? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that all. This is the Jewish equivalent of don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with the girls that do. If you grew up Southern Baptist like me, you might know that saying, yeah? It's, it's all about the don'ts. Don't do that. You're justified by the things you don't do. I didn't beat my wife today. Well, congratulations. That makes you a really good man. It's, it's legalism. That's known as legalism, right? So... So the, the, uh, the Jews were taken captive by the Babylonians. And when they returned to the land, some of them known as Pharisees decided never again. Never again. Never again. The law actually says, let me read a little of this to you. It's fascinating. So as you look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, I counted the number of words in each of the commandments. The shortest one is do not murder. God didn't see any need to elaborate on that. It seems pretty clear. Don't murder. Do not steal. Another one. Do not commit adultery. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Those don't require a whole lot of explanation. The Sabbath law uses 96 words. Somehow the Lord knew this is going to get complicated. I better try and explain this to you. So the Pharisees decided, well, if the law says, don't step over that line, what if we just draw another line so that we never even get close to it? And then the next generation of rabbis come along. Okay, well, if, if you like that, watch this. 
Let's draw another line. And let's draw another line. And Jesus referred to that as the tradition of men. It became the oral law. It's known as building a hedge around the Torah or building a fence around it to protect the Jews from ever being taken into captivity again for violating the covenant that God had with them. Trouble was, this fence, this hedge, this oral law became the main thing, not the heart of the Torah, which was the basis of the covenant love relationship that God has with his people. And so now the rabbis and the Jewish leadership are using this oral law to set themselves up as the rulers, as the experts. And as Sebastian said in The Little Mermaid, you give them an inch, they swim all over. A man's walking around with a mat on the Sabbath. Pretty soon the Babylonians are just going to come and wreck us because of this, right? So they are legalists enforcing the oral law. Well, he replied in verse 11, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Hey, it wasn't me. I'm just doing what this guy told me to do, right? So clearly he was not really excited about uh, violating the oral law. And he still did not know who Jesus was. And apparently the Jewish leadership didn't either because they're asking him who, who did this. And he doesn't know. Verse 12. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. He departed unnoticed. He didn't know before the healing. He didn't know after the healing. Jesus wasn't yet ready to reveal himself. But the other shoe is about to drop. It's high noon at the OK Corral. It's the Sabbath. We're about to have some conflict. Verse 14. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. This man had no faith to ask for healing. Jesus did it on his own prerogative for the glory of God and to bear witness to who he was. And to tell him to sin no more means to repent. To repent. Now, repent is to change your mind. So if the way of God is this way and the way you're going is anything other than that way, to repent is to change your mind and align with the truth and the way that God has taught. It doesn't mean I'm... I'm about to go rob a bank and all of a sudden I realize it's wrong and so now I decide not to rob a bank. I mean, that would be repentance. Uh, but literally, it's aligning your life with the truth of Scripture. That is what repentance is. Now, what could be worse than laying around lame for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda? There seems to be a connection with sin and something worse. And most commentators would say, and I totally agree with this, what would be worse is judgment. What would be worse is living eternally apart from God. You have to think bigger picture. Jesus wasn't just thinking about this man from 38 years being lame to when he was going to die. He's thinking eternally. And we need to think eternally. We get so lost in what's happening here on this planet, on this earth, in our lives. And it's so liberating to think about eternity and what Jesus has promised us. So Jesus wants to, him to avoid the final judgment in hell by repenting. So now he realizes, oh, this is Jesus. It doesn't explain how he comes to recognize Jesus in the temple where Jesus sought him out. But he goes and reports it to the Jews. Verse, 13, verse 15, 
The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. This dude's kind of a, he's kind of a scoundrel. Like, there's no gratitude here, right? I mean, what's going on? He's going and telling, he's ratting him out. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. It's beyond me how someone who experiences a healing like that wouldn't just be filled with gratitude, walking and leaping and praising God, right, and wanting to tell everybody what he did for you. It's beyond me how someone who is saved doesn't live a life of gratitude and joy and humble submission and service to the Lord and to his church. To be saved is, is, is the greatest thing there is. I was voted most likely to succeed my junior and senior year in high school. And, and that was a great gift to me because it caused me to stop and ask, what does it mean to be successful? And I concluded it has nothing to do with my job or my title or my income or my possessions. The measure of success for me, and I think for any believer, should be hearing Jesus say when you stand before him, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. Like what else matters in this life if that's not, if you hear depart from me, I never knew you, that's massive failure, I think. To succeed is to serve the Lord and to know him truly and to have a life that's being transformed by him. But this breaking the Sabbath was an affront to their religious sensibilities and it threatened their leadership and their position of power. So they're not about it. They're not about to have it. They're going to confront it. Verse 17, Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now, this is John editorializing. He's explaining to us what it meant to the Jews that Jesus would say these things. Because I think 2,000 years later, Western English speakers that don't understand first century Jewish culture, we would read those things and that's not a big deal. But Jesus was making divine ultimate claims, and they knew it very plainly. Listen, breaking the Sabbath makes you a sinner. They might cast you out of the temple. They might look down on you. They might think less of you. You know, you, you, it wouldn't be good. But saying that you're equal with God is blasphemy. That's a whole different level. It's a whole different level. It's like a misdemeanor versus a felony. It's like getting a jaywalking ticket versus you're a traitor and you're subject to capital punishment. It's a big deal. It's the biggest of deals to be considered a blasphemer to the Jews in the first century. It's one night in a tank versus lethal injection. It couldn't be more different. Verse 19. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own but only what he sees the Father doing. Now, this is not a statement about the incapacity of Jesus. This is a statement about the unity of Jesus with the Father and his oneness with him. He chooses to do what the Father is doing. He's perfectly aligned with the work of the Father in the world. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. For the Father loves the Son 
and shows him everything he's doing. And he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So apparently it's not enough just to heal a guy who's been lame and disabled for 38 years. There's more to come. What could be greater than that? As I reflect on it, I realize, well, the, the raising of Lazarus, sure. Raising a guy from the dead seems like a notch up from helping a guy walk who was, was lame. But think about this. Jesus resurrected himself after three days. That's a greater work. Jesus ascended into heaven in the sight of all the disciples and is seated at the right hand of God. That was a greater thing. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to the church, set them on fire and sent them to the world to preach the gospel. That was a greater work. The church has grown and thrived and billions of people have come to faith. That's a greater work. And there's still some greater works yet to happen that we look forward to. We're waiting for his second coming. That's a greater work. We're waiting for judgment. We're all going to be judged, right? Amen? Yes. We're all going to face judgment. I want to face judgment with Jesus as my advocate, not someone that I didn't want and that I kept at arm's length in my lifetime. And finally, he's going to establish and rule over an eternal kingdom of righteousness. So fortunately for us, not all of the greater works have been accomplished. We have a lot to look forward to. God is good all the time. Amen? He's good. Verse 21. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. Again, the Jews would have thought of this as exclusively the purview of the one God. God is one. And here's this man claiming what is exclusively something the Father does. So the Son also gives life to whom he wants. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus makes claim after claim after claim out in the open, starting in chapter 5 of John that confronts the Jews' ideas about himself, about God, about the heart of God, about the covenant relationship they have with God, about what it means to have a Messiah that will come and rescue you. He wasn't going to kick the Romans out and establish a political kingdom. That's not what it was about. Jesus is not just God's partner, as some like to teach. He doesn't just partner with God. He's not just some superhuman guy who God enabled to do things with him. He is God, and he's worthy of our worship. He's not just a great healer or the best example of us. And this idea of honor brings with it the idea of submission and obedience. Now, submission is kind of a dirty word in our culture. People don't like that idea. You know, the, 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 uh, the country was founded on the idea of throwing off uh, the reins of the king and not submitting to that. But we all submit to something, right? We're all submitting to something. The question is, what is it that you're submitting to? Jesus made it very clear that if you love me, you will obey my commands. There's an equivalency there. And so around here, we like to say that we submit to the word of God. We submit to the spirit of God. And we submit to the people of God. And if you do that and you're living in community, surely you will be pleasing to God. His spirit will live in you. And what he will bring will be, instead of sin, 
disorder, and death. He brings righteousness. He sets what is amiss in order. And he brings life. 2 Corinthians 5.21, again, not on the screen, but says this. He made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are the righteousness of God. You are the prize he won by going to the cross. You are the redeemed. You have a wellspring of life springing up within you. Being Christian looks very different than not. Knowing him truly produces something in a person that knowing about Jesus can't produce. Now, there's a a text that was sent to the staff this week that I'd like to read to you. I found this to be incredibly profound. I think it's an example of how Christians talk and think and live. Mark, it's from your son. I don't know if you saw this or have heard it. Uh, So Justin, who is uh, one of our youth ministers, writes this. After dinner, Kenyon, their nine-year-old son, asked what would happen to he and his siblings, his younger sister and brother, if Deb and I died. Now, they're both in Poland, and he's plenty old enough to be aware that they're flying across an ocean, that there's some war going on over there, right? I don't know how much he actually knows. And Justin didn't say, in light of the fact that we were going to Poland, but I can only assume, based on the timing, that this was probably what triggered the conversation, right? I don't know that for sure. But it's a profound question for a nine-year-old to ask the parents. So what happens if you guys, what happens to us if you guys die? I wanted them to know two things, and this is so Justin. One, we believe that to live is fruitful labor in Christ, but to die is far better because we get to be with Christ. And two, that our family as defined by Jesus himself, those who do the will of the Father, would be there to help raise them. He and Sophie did not respond with fear or doubt, but confidence. I could see it in their eyes and hear it in their voices. It made perfect sense to them. They believed that you, our family here at Sunnybrook, would be there to help them if Deb and I had the privilege of going to be with Jesus. My children love and trust you because you love and trust Jesus. I can't tell you what great strength and confidence that gives me. My faith is bolstered because of your faithful love. I'm eternally grateful to God for the gift of this family. Now, this isn't about not valuing blood or biological family. It's about the connection that we have in Jesus, that Jesus himself said, your true brothers and sisters are those who are of the faith. There's this deep, deep connection that transcends everything else. And I see it when I meet believers that I, that I never knew before. There's this immediate connection that we have. There's a witness in the Spirit that binds us together because we have something eternal. And I read this and I thought, this, this is what it looks like to truly know Jesus. These kids don't just know about him. They aren't just processing facts. They have a peace. They have an assurance in their soul that everything's going to be all right. Ah, it's amazing to me. That a nine-year-old would would grasp that. 
It's so awesome. So amazing. May we be the kind of people that know him and we live from the knowledge that we have of him. The demons knew him. True believers know him. Do you know him? Let's pray for a minute. Father, may we have a longing to know you, to walk with you, to have hunger for the things of you, to want to seek you, to want to read scripture, to want to be with your people, to want to serve the way you served. Open our eyes and hearts to you and to the gospel and lead us, Father, every day. Enable us to live faithfully for your glory so that when we face Jesus, we can hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. And so because we follow him and we know him, we choose every week to remember him and to reenact something that he told his followers to do on a regular basis. And that is to share in something known as the Lord's Supper or communion. They were around the table and he said, take the bread and break it and eat it in remembrance of the body that was broken for you. And take the cup, which represents his blood that was shed for you. We're about to sing words that are given meaning because of what we just talked about. Our present, our future, and our past are all in his hands. Through what he did on the cross, he redeemed all the mistakes and sin that we've ever been involved with. He lives in us now to form Christ more fully in us and our future is secure because of what he did. We're covered by the blood of Jesus and our lives are in his hands. So let's sing. Let's stand and sing. Let's worship in song with hearts of gratitude. I encourage you to engage in this and give the Lord glory by filling your lungs and singing together.